So much of your swing comes down to your grip. Yeah. Like that's your connection to the club. It informs what's about to happen to your ball. It's so, so important. And we overlook it. I see somebody pull out a crusty glove. I'm like, first of all, what are you doing? Log off. You are a grown up. You are better than this. And then that's when I introduced them to the subscription model of Red Rooster. Because you know what? Nothing feels better than a fresh glove showing up in my mailbox every single month. When we get a new glove, it feels like being given a new skin. You know, you're like, ooh, I, I didn't know that I needed this. These gloves are so durable. Sometimes I, I keep two on the bag and accidentally use the one from last month because they're just both so fresh. Indistinguishable. I don't know how they keep getting away with this. What are they putting in these gloves? It's too fresh and too durable. You can't have both. You can't have soft and durable. It's the perfect toilet paper. This glove is a math problem. It should be deteriorating, but it keeps getting better. It's like that joke, wit gets wetter as it dries. A A towel. towel. Sorry. A a towel. (laughs) In this case, it's a damn golf glove. It gets softer as you use it. And guess what? I feel more confident using a Red Rooster glove than any other glove I've ever worn in my entire life. Head over to redroostergolf.com and use our code ggt 20 for 20% off your first order. There's another side to good health, and that's good mental health. Any trips planned in the near future? October's pretty full. Uh, Next week, where am I going? Going up to National... Big Cedar Lodge, Southern Hills, Dallas, um, Orlando the next week, uh, Charlotte for a thing with Chasing Scratch, and then Oakmont, and then, yeah, dude, it's October's, man, crazy. I hope you have a good freaking Flyer Miles program lined up. I have reached the, uh, the top of the hill. Uh, on American, which is which is nice. You just look down on everyone, townspeople. <laughs> oh yeah, waiting for your upgrades. Good luck. <laughs> it strikes me you've been up close and personal with so many old things, particularly golf courses. And I'm always curious when I speak with people who have encountered a lot of old, potentially haunted things. Do you believe in ghosts? Do I believe in ghosts? A hundred percent. I do actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not because of, not just because of the, well, the ghosts of golf and the ghosts of Bobby Jones. No, not, not for those reasons. Right. No, I'm talking like actual paranormal activity. No, actually, when, when I was uh, very young, we had uh, an encounter uh, in our home with, uh, with something from somewhere else. So yeah, it was Whoa. pretty crazy. I was very, I was like three years old. So, um, yeah, it's weird. I don't really tell this story very much, but most people don't ask me if I believe in ghosts, but in any event, um, yeah, we had, you know, tables moving around, stuff falling off walls and a whole, a whole thing and had to, uh, bring in a, um, someone who deals with those sorts of things to a medium to rectify it. It started with a, a Ouija board. We're Catholics, so we probably would have gone to a priest, but um, our neighbors where this all started, uh, they were not. So they got, uh, a, I think it was like a Wiccan to oh do some goodness. sort of exorcism. Um, 
in any event, I don't know. It all stopped after she did. So yeah, it was crazy. It started with a Ouija board. My brothers and sisters uh, were playing over our neighbors and um, it got, uh, it got a little weird over there. Stuff started happening in their house. And then they came to our house one night, uh, the parents and the kids to talk about like what's been going on. And uh, stuff started happening in our house that night. um, Yeah, I remember it. I remember it pretty... uh, There's, I have some pretty vivid memories of it, but my brothers, I'm the youngest of five. So they're... And they're... I'm the youngest by a wide margin. So like they were in high school and college and I was like three. Um, So they know the story better than I do. And my mom does. And, you know, so it's funny. Like I would would tell this story. I used to be a... I'm a recently retired professor. Um... Now running, helping to um, a senior editor at the Golfer's Journal. But when I was teaching, this story would come up in my creative writing classes mm-hmm. when someone would write a scary story. And of course, the students would be like, I don't believe it. this. It's stupid. Professor Coyne. So I would call my mom and she would tell it on speaker. And she, you know, she's 90 years old and, and she has, knows more of the details. And that would freak the hell out. That would like scare the shit out of them because... Then you're yeah. like, like, because yeah. like, oh my god, this lady's not lying. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, they they, um, they don't believe the story, and then they go to their the dean, and they say like, you know, Professor Coin told us this ghost story, and then the dean's like, Tom Coin's been dead for thirty years. Yeah, that's how. That's exact. That's usually what happens. And then, yeah, yeah, I know. And then they're like, oh my god, I should have been seeing dead people. Hey, ironically, I teach in the building where M. Night Shyamalan went to high school, or I used to teach oh, in that wow. building. It, it all oh, How about together. that? It's all coming to circle. And I just told you it was just a screen, my next screenplay I'm working on. No, all that, that stuff did happen, <laughs> but um, you didn't expect all that, did you? Yeah, I, I didn't know that this was going to be such a th- you didn't, thread to pull on. I mean, you didn't see that my coming. My God. No. I mean, has it translated to the golf course at all? Have you had any encounters or or felt any presences on the course at all? I wish I wish I felt more of the presence of the divine or the otherworldly. No, I don't. I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't say certainly not ghostly experiences, but um, you know, there are definitely moments out there when you do become aware of something larger than yourself, and uh, I guess that's what we call the spiritual. So. That's cool. Um, That's certainly, you know, and some of the, some of my trips are on these far flung, you know, on a far flung Scottish Island um, as I'm, as my blood sugar is dropping and I'm playing my 72nd hole of the day. uh, My my (laughs) mind can wander to, uh, to grandiose places. And, uh, and you certainly become aware of your, uh, your sort of maybe your smallness and, and the whole thing of it. So, Yeah particularly if there's some you know medieval scottish castle looming over you on the nearby cliffside or something i can imagine that getting pretty um scene sceney scene like yeah right that does add to the the ambiance and the feeling you've been very fortunate to play most of the the best golf courses in the entire world on three of the coolest countries um, for golf in existence, Ireland, Scotland, and America. I feel like a lot of people probably see your work and think dream job immediately, mm-hmm. right? Can you confirm? Is that is that something that you feel, or is like you know at the at the end of the day you still got to write a good book? <laughs> How does that sit with you? Uh, that's a good question. That came up the other night. Actually, we were um, talking about where I'd been or where I was going or something, and. Um, 
and I think someone made a comment like, oh, must be nice, you know, like, or, or whatever. Yeah, um, and right. I get that a lot. Um, and I'll yeah. tell you what, my job beats digging ditches. I'm not going to lie to you. I am very, very fortunate. Um, and I will not, I'll never complain about, you know, that it's a, it's a great blessing, you know, and, and there's a lot of people that have sort of pushed me along, you know, and carried me along, uh, agents, editors, and my wife, <laughs> thank, you know, I wouldn't be doing anything without her buying in and supporting mm-hmm. what I do. So I think it's kind of more of a, like a, we have a, a, a dream situation. I hope she sees it the same way. Um, it's probably hard when I'm gone for so long, but yeah, I, I appreciate the question because it's work, <laughs> you know, writing books isn't, it's not that easy or, or being on deadline and writing articles and, and doing stuff, you know, people might assume, oh, you're a writer. You just sit down and bang it out. That's not what happens at all. It's always hard. And it always feels like I've never done it before. You know, when you sit down to write a book or write an art, like when you stare at a blank page, it is, um, I don't care like how many blank pages you've had stared at. Uh, it's, it, it can be pretty intimidating. I, I, I have much better strategies now for dealing with that and getting into things more quickly. And I'm able to produce work more quickly and, uh, and I'm a more effective editor and all those things, but none of that's made it easy. Right. Um, so, and maybe there are writers for whom it's just like, Oh, I just sit around and eat bonbons and, um, and then <laughs> just and bang away on the keyboard and it comes out and it's perfect. But, um, I'm not that writer. I think Shyamalan being, says that actually. Right. I know. No. Um, quote. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I'm taking it from. I wish it was like that, but, um, no, it's, it's, there are definitely, you know, there's a lot of self doubt. Um, there are moments of like, there's tons of self-doubt really i think in any creative Mm -hmm. endeavor where you're just like um they're gonna find out i'm a phony you know the next story is the one that's going to bring me down so you deal with a lot of that um i mean it's no there's no like miracle or surprise that like artists and writers have a uh, propensity to drink themselves to death not all of them but there Mm -hmm. there's a there's a pretty healthy crew uh of big Mm -hmm. names that have gone down that path, uh, myself included for a while, um, because you are dealing with a lot of like emotional, there's a lot of that self-doubt. There are moments when you feel like, man, if I could just show up today and just sit here and put in eight hours and they would give me money, um, that would be sweet now. But the trade-in for not having that arrangement where, you know, I have to go sell another book or come up with a new idea. Um, I would never mm. want to trade that. I mean, the, the thrill and the excitement and the joy and the rewards that come from that are are fantastic. But there are times in the moment where you're just like, fuck this, like I can't do it. Yeah, and particularly if there's anything remotely autobiographical in your work too, you're giving part of your soul away. You're pouring not just your ideas, but like your personality into that blank page as well, which is terrifying. Yeah, that's that's been the interesting part of From Paper Tiger on where the last four books I've been a character in them and not just like an Mm -hmm. observant distant narrator. Like I'm, I'm the story and I, and I'd like to frankly get away from, I think I've, I've uh, put enough of my guts on the page at this point. I've got little left to mine. Um, (laughs) But right. So you're, that's a tricky thing because I found you're judged on multiple levels. One is as a writer and then two is as a, character and i usually get judged more harshly for the second part 
where it's like, oh yeah, the writing's fine, but you know, you were, uh, you know, what was that about? Or you were a wanker for that, or, you know, that's uncool or, or something, you know, like, or, <laughs> or you should have done this or who do you think you are? That kind of stuff, which you don't get from all the, all the time, but you know, um, I'd say it's definitely a job for like, if you don't deal well with like criticism or being judged, this is not a good, a good career path because it's, you know, it's constant. Like some is very, is the sort you yeah. seek out, which is like editorial advice, like from people who you trust. And then some is just random, like Twitter hate. Those are all Russian bots anyways. Don't take, don't pay them any mind. That's what I think. Yeah. Well, I think that that must be a cool piece of writing books or, and, and, and having books be your primary medium. I know you, you write a bunch of articles as well, but like even those for the golfer's journal appear in a physical, tangible book. They're not slathered online the online parasocial relationship that you have with your audience i feel like must look a lot different than most current publishers these days who are writing blogs and writing substack newsletters and writing you know for for digital publications that have very um or 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 even just like people on social media who have like very direct and immediate response from their audience does that do you think about that at all how your your feedback vehicle is is maybe different from and maybe even like an antiquated one but but albeit probably a a more healthy one (laughs) yeah it's interesting like i mean when i started doing this it was all about um not to date myself but it was like okay where are you getting reviewed um and and what newspapers and uh Mm -hmm. you know are you gonna you know Okay, I've got the, you know, we got into these 15 papers across the country. Are we going to get the New York Times? Are we going to get the journal? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Like, that's how you, those were, that's the feedback that you you were concerned about. And by some miracle, would you get the New Yorker or whatever? And that's, you know, what publicists did was try to get you in those places and you waited around to see if you got reviewed. And then, you know, and of course, Amazon reviews, but, you know, that's just not as impactful. You were more concerned with, you know, getting, reviewed in certain places. And now that's totally changed. I mean, there's really only like a handful of places, even writing book reviews for golf books. It's even fewer or sports books in general. Um, so in terms of getting feedback, um, a lot of it does come now, whether, you know, online through Goodreads, through Amazon, through people posting stuff on Twitter and Instagram. And that's cool. I mean, I, I think people are generally at this point, I mean, I've been doing this for a little while, so I don't, um, you know, there's still people picking up books, I guess that would have no idea what my sensibilities are and they might pick it up and they might hate it. But at this point, I think yeah. people are, are coming to a, a, a course called whatever book knowing, Oh, I like the other ones. So let me check out this one. And generally, I don't know. I, I, I get good feedback mm. and it's, cool to see that of course you know your nature as a um i don't know my nature anyway is to focus on the um the one person who didn't like the book <laughs> uh instead of the the 500 who emailed you and said that they did and that's probably not healthy but it's also like I, it's useful because if i if i wasn't that way then you could just sit around a lot and tell yourself you're great and play a lot of video games or something um Versus that feeling of, I mean, a little insecurity is very helpful um, to get you to keep working every day. 
uh, and trying to get better and saying, I still have the next thing I write will be the best thing that I write. You know, not looking back and saying, mm-hmm. oh, not standing on some article that or book that's been written, but um, hoping you can do better. And that's, yeah, I'm still trying to do better. Yeah, of course. Tom, something that, that uh, is, is a, a through line through a lot of our shows and guests that we have on is is having a conversation and playing around a golf with a, a younger version of yourself. Um, I, I think it was, it was interesting how no matter what um, vocation that our guests are in and or what their career is, the, the, the through line of self doubt has been present pretty much with every guest that we have, whether, you know, Lydia Ko, um, musicians, other writers, people, people that, we would consider at the top of their craft. What would a conversation look like with, with young Tom, if you were out there playing golf together, um, doesn't necessarily have to be advice. Just what do you think you guys were talking about? Yeah, I would tell him to probably, um, buy Google and, uh, give him some good, (laughs) some good useful, um, bet on the birds, uh, the super, no, I would give him a lot of inside (laughs) tips to, to, to easy, to easy and lazy wealth. And then I would tell him, um, <laughs> stop paying attention to what other people think pay, or pay less attention to it. You know, hmm. that's something that I, uh, continue to work on and be reminded how important that is, uh, to understand that what other people think about me is none of my business. Um, and also understand that people aren't really thinking about me. That's useful too. <laughs> like this idea that uh, my choices <laughs> or what I'm doing or writing or whatever is um, it is going to be judged from on high. Well, most people are too busy like thinking about their own stuff and worrying about what other people are thinking about them to uh, mm. <laughs> to think that much about to worry that much about you. So it, yeah, I think that there's a certain like a friend of mine once described like his fear of flying as being like an issue of like an overinflated ego because, you know, flying is very, very safe. And, um, there's almost, there's like statistically almost a a nil sort of chance of of you not surviving a flight. And of course tragedy happens, et cetera. But, you know, his notion was that like, Oh, but my ego says that I'm going to be the one to go down in some act of international terrorism or whatever. And, and, and that, cause that's, I'm just mm. that important. Mm. So, uh, you know, that, that I'm such at this, at, at the center of the show. And, uh, and the thing about that, I'm like, yeah, man, like a, a lot of the things that I, I worry about come out of a skewed perspective of like sort of how I fit into, um, the grand scheme of things. And it's usually, uh, an, an, an inflated self-importance, right? Um, if you're, uh, if you have, I think a good f- awareness of, and doesn't mean to like, think you're like nothing. Um, it just means like, I think humility is an awareness of who you are is, and is like self-knowledge. And if you have, if you have like some awareness of who you are and how mm-hmm. you fit into the world and what you do and why you do it, and those are all elusive things, but if you get a little piece of them, um, you, uh, I found that you'd spend less time worrying about stuff that you can't, that you shouldn't worry about because it's, it doesn't impact any of that. Um, so that's good, but I only have to really engage that when stuff is bad. 
when things are going well, I'll get um right. I'll I'll get real cranky about like stupid shit because <laughs> I have the lux I have the luxury of it, right? Because everything's good. So I'm gonna complain about this person or get like uh out of my out of joint out of uh because this person's doing this online and I I wish I was doing that. And you know, it takes like mm. um it, it takes sometimes like some a, a real streak of like shitty stuff to happen to remind you of all this it's a weird like i you know you get peace out of the dark the dark stuff um not immediately but it's it's just you know when stuff happens that can alter shake your perspective and remind you that you're not that important um that's pretty good you know to remind you that you are not indeed the the center of the universe um, you'd think that you would just intuitively know that every day, but, um, when things are going good, it's like, yeah, I am the center of the universe. Watch out. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, when you have, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I caught a little bit of the cancer last year or this year, last year. And, uh, and going through that was a very, like, it was super scary, but then it was also like came with a sense of like, it forces you to adjust your perspective and to and you live a little differently and um or, or you yeah. look at life a little bit differently so there's like there's like blessings in that um that that's pretty cool uh so i don't even know where how we started that question but there we are well how has that implemented changes into your life or changes of perspective when you got a diagnosis like that and you know there's the fear that comes in i'm sure are are there some actual tangible changes that you've made or or changes in perspective at least that you feel like you've made maybe on like a a sub more subconscious level i think mm. uh i am making i find i do find myself like making way more effort to be around as much as i do travel now i i i'm finding myself making more effort to get home more often, um, only taking absolutely necessary trips or, or trips that have some real tangible, not just, not just wandering off to go play more golf. So my head is adjusted a little bit that way. Like I I do want to spend more time with my kids. Um, and I probably, I mean, what it's just, I don't, it hasn't really, I don't think I've, I've changed, but I think that I'm not, I'm just not as afraid of the little stuff Mm. as I probably was. Um, And that's like the feeling of like, you know, hey. Isn't that so powerful? Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Like, um, and it's it's something like my wife probably notices because she still will stress over maybe the small stuff, as they say, on, on bestsellers. Uh, and you know, sweating the small stuff. And I, I have, I have not, I do not sweat the f- small stuff. I don't, I have no Fs left to give about, um, a lot of things. And that's, that's pretty fun actually at my age. Usually you have to be a lot old. Like my parents are there. Like my dad doesn't give an F and it's awesome, <laughs> but he's 88. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I do get, think that I'm in a different sort of space after 
after that and knowing, you know, like going every three months to go get your checkup and find out where things are. Like, um, <laughs> I, I, I had one today and, you know, and I, it's weird that I'm not like sitting around waiting for the doctor to email me. Right. Like, um, I just sort of feel like it's going to mm-hmm. go as, as it's supposed to go. It's like powerless being powerless and is a very power understanding your powerlessness, I think is a very powerful thing. Um, because it just gives you freedom. Right. And um, yeah. when you realize you're not running every running the friggin' show, you can just go and enjoy your life. And sometimes I think something needs to force us to feel powerless. And you know, cancer's good for that. Along with, and golf's good for that too. <laughs> golf will remind, yeah. golf will humble the shit out of you. Yeah, that's that's quite the perspective uh, shift in life. Yeah, and I was I wanted to ask you about the the periods of your life in which the course called series were written you know you started with ireland and then scotland and now america spaced out several years apart from one another i'm sure a lot has happened well certainly a lot has happened in the world of golf over that time period even more has happened in the world (laughs) of note over that time period but when you look back at who you were when you wrote that first one who you were when you wrote the second one and who you were when you wrote America, what does that make you, what comes up for you there? How do you, how do you reflect on that, those periods? Yeah. I mean, they're very different. Um, It probably shows up in the books a little too, which is probably useful for, for the reader to sort of see the progression of like the books themselves. Mm. I think I'm different at the end of each book than I was at the beginning. But I think if you look at the whole series, I'm very different at the end of America than I was at the beginning of Ireland. There was a large, a pretty good stretch of years over that, that, you know, those trips. So I'm like looking at like 2007 to 2019. So we're, yeah, it's a pretty good run. Um, and, and at the, I'm, you know, doing Ireland, I'm younger. I don't have kids yet. Uh, I'm recently married so there's a care, there's sort of like a, a a wonderful sort of sort of carefree carelessness to that adventure. I mean, mm-hmm. damn, what I did was frankly dangerous. Like walking around those those roads, um, <laughs> with a just backpack and golf clubs yeah, those on my back. Narrow and, Irish roads. <laughs> yeah, you know, dodging trucks and buses and doing that whole thing. Like I would never do that now that I've I have kids. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So like. I, but I was in a place in my life where, like, if you made me do that now, I, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't. Mm. I'm just saying I'm not, like, you know, staying in, you know, one star bed breakfasts or sleeping in the room someone found, like, behind the pub that has, a like, a cot in it. You know, like, like living, like, that way. You can do that in your 20s and maybe in your 30s. I'm, you know, uh, I may be past the, those years. So, uh, like I couldn't travel and live like that anymore as much as I do travel still. I'm at a point where it's like, all right, I need, I need at least a, um, I need to like, you know, at least a clean room or whatever. But, um, yeah, so that kind of life is, I look back on it now and I'm glad that I, I did live that way, uh, with just nothing, no worries and a little bit of money in my pocket and like, you know, let's see where this goes. Um, and mm. also, and also is, you know, a pretty, uh, accomplished, <laughs> something of an accomplished drinker as well, um, in that book and, uh, and, and at that point in my life. So 
um, you know, that also lent itself to the sort of like who gives a shit kind of attitude that permeates the book that I think is fun and I think is is funny as well. And it, and frankly, it got me into like trouble too, which um, mm-hmm. depending on your sense of humor, you'll either find amusing in the book or or less so, you know, it's just, but it just, it's who I was at that point in my life. So I wasn't like crazy and nuts and like out of control, but I definitely got into situations that I would, I would not get myself into today. And so there's a big gap then before I do the Scotland book. And during that gap, I got sober and, um, and life and had, you know, kids and, um, and life totally changed, uh, for me. So I think that's reflected. And I think the Scotland book is a little more of a thoughtful book. And I became a more thoughtful person at that point in my life. So, I mean, this Ireland book's kind of a party. The Scotland book is kind of like after the party, like what happens. And then um, I think the America book is like all the rewards you get mm-hmm. that come with maybe trying to, uh, and those rewards are relationships. Because the America book is is a is like a us book. It's like a we story, right? Like, the the Scotland Ireland, frankly, they're kind of like I stories, like it's the first person adventures, and 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 the, and America's written in the first person, but right. I'm the least important character in that book. That book is about all these people I met in the country and how wonderful they are and interesting they are and how much they have to offer, and the reward is that I got to meet them, right? Like I got to go out and get off my ass, and <laughs> that I'm not stuck in a bar yeah. or yeah, stuck yeah. on my couch and. You know, that I get to go out and meet all these awesome people because of golf and because um, because people are are genuinely really, really good. So, so I think that's how they're different and, and how I've changed over the 12 years, I guess. You've talked a good bit about your path to sobriety, but like, how does that fit into your life now? What do you... What's your practice like? Um, how does that stay present in your life? Yeah, don't drink. That's um, pretty. That's pretty much my practice. <laughs> Rule one. <laughs> yeah, don't don't drink, stupid. Um, no, I, I think for me, um, you know, it's been essential to keep. Um, stay aware and uh, stay grateful. I think is, is the most essential thing is, and and that's not always easy as we wake up. And the first thing we do is we look at our phone like an idiot and start thinking about all the stuff you have to do because your phone tells you you have to do it. Um, you know, if I can take, yeah, Mm -hmm. if I can take a moment and be grateful that I'm waking up sober, that I didn't have to, don't have to apologize to anyone today, that if I do, screw up and I will apologize for, for any you know mistakes that I'm going to make because I have the capacity to do that now. So if I stay grateful for all that and all the gifts and blessings and, and God, um, you know, how, how, how really exceptional life is today with, with all, with all its curveballs, it's just unbelievably great. If I can remember that, like grateful people don't go out and get drunk again. That's generally a, a rule that, that sober people will hmm. tell you. When you lose that gratitude mm. for your sobriety and for all the gifts in your life, um, a drink will start to look better. So, so that's big for me, and also just staying in touch with and and around other sober people um, doesn't mean that I don't. I mean, 
probably 80% of the people I associate with are very, are, are very unsober in any number of ways. But, you know, my best friends that I'm texting with daily, playing golf with frequently, they've been on the same journey that I've been on. And that sort of fellowship mm-hmm. is, uh, is essential because um, any sort of addiction is very isolating where you feel like you are the only person in the world who's ever dealt with this. You're the only person who's ever felt this way. You're the only person who's had to go through this. Nobody understands you. And that will just keep you killing yourself, right? Um, Until you meet people who are like, hey, I know exactly what you feel like because I went through every, you know, I've been through all those moments myself. And and once you believe them, uh, then you start to get better. So yeah, it's uh, other people and um, trying to, uh, you know, stay grateful for what I've been given uh, and not blow it, you know? And then also like I, I just and then there's like just simple practices like I don't um, like my wife doesn't drink anymore. So we don't have booze around the house. So that's nice. Like I don't like see it constantly and I'm like wonder ooh, what would that be like? Um, what they have all these alcoholic seltzers now. That's neat. What, I wonder yeah, what that's yeah. about. And by the way, that's kind of bullshit what happened to seltzer because <laughs> A new um, it's crap because seltzer when you quit drinking for whatever reason i never drank seltzer in my life but started to crave it uh once i stopped drinking because you you're used to drinking all the time and then you want something that has like bite to it that doesn't isn't like sweet and syrupy like coke or something like so like sober people generally drink a ton Mm -hmm. of coffee and i don't like caffeine or like a ton of seltzer and um Mm. and then they come out with and they start putting freaking booze in seltzer it's like what the hell you know, so like when I golf <laughs> and you go up to the the halfway house and you're like, hey, do you have seltzer? They're like, yeah, we have 52 flavors and varieties. I'm like, do you have one that doesn't have alcohol in it? Uh, they're like, what? Right. Like if they're younger, they didn't a realize that one. there was seltzer yeah. before alcohol in it. They didn't know that that was a thing. And it's like, oh, man. I mean, yeah. thank God for Topo yeah. Chico. Back and, in my day, you had and to our, put... Right. <laughs> you had to mix them yourself, uh, <laughs> you know, and the LaCroix of the world. But the, so people like who play golf say, like, I could never be a member at a club or do this, that, and the other or golf anymore as a sober person because there's alcohol, you know, is, is you know, such a part of their golf. And um, that, and that mm. can, I guess that's true, but. Like the only no one cares whether you're drinking LaCroix or or one of those other or like high noon. Like no one no one really cares. Um so that you can get over that easily. I don't yeah. I don't hang around like at the member guest, like I'm not gonna be there till midnight, you know? Um like I'll get it, right. I'll have my fun and then I'm out. Like I generally arrive late and leave early. And um that's all I want to do anyway. It only like, gets debaucherous. Yeah. there's nothing hour. right there's nothing good happens so it's not oh it's dude it is so great what you're showing yeah. up the day two of member guest or member member and being like feeling great and looking around uh yeah. at all the the headaches and you're just like oh at dude a, i'm gonna smoke corpses yeah i'm gonna smoke these fools. <laughs> yeah. um and uh and all the you know and not only did it look terrible like what did i do last night i drove that golf cart home like blah 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 you know like mm. i don't have to deal with that stuff so it's good I'll tell you what, caddying for member guests was the absolute highlight of my career. It's like what you live and die for, picking literal bodies off of the ground, spoon feeding them quite literally, (laughs) Pappy Van Winkle 
and uh, <laughs> shipping them on their way, being being their shepherds for the day. It's it's quite a quite an experience. It's pretty wild, man. I mean, it's definitely an environment that yeah, like and so people be like, how am I ever gonna go back to my golf club? And it's like, well, one. I know there's a handful of sober dudes at your golf club. It's just the statistics are going to point that out. And then two, you don't have to be that dude. And and no one's going to forget. Like, and, or no one's going to remember. Like, you weren't there at one o'clock in the morning, like shotgunning or doing whatever. You know, nobody cares. Everyone's into their own stuff. Like, they're into their own. They're into. Their, they're on their own mission. They're in their own journey, man. You stay. You you hang mm-hmm. out on yours. It's fine. Mm-hmm. The initial feeling of like the first yeah. time I played golf without a drink, I was like, this feel. I felt like I was on Mars. But then, you know, as with all yeah. the first things wow. you do as a sober person after so many years of just <laughs> just trained behavior, like I do this when I do this, I have a drink. When I have dinner, I have a drink. When I play golf, I have a drink, blah, blah, blah. And so you got to do all those things again for the first time without a drink. And so they all feel a little foreign. But once you relearn that behavior, hmm. uh, it doesn't, taste, doesn't take that long. And then you find all these cool things. They're like, wow, like I can taste my food. And then... Uh, um, Oh wow! Like I'm, I can play the back. I I can actually finish around like well. Um, and uh, you know there, there there's a lot of perks. Right. There's no cliff at the end. Yeah. Scotland, Ireland, America. Who does golf better? Well, I'm gonna have to. You know, you got to give it to the Scots um, <laughs> for doing because they've been doing it the longest, right? Like I, the home of golf, yeah. and I think they earned that title. And I think the way that. They operate their clubs to the way that they operate their competitions, meaning like they have they're very competitive. They have a lot of club competitions at their clubs. Their clubs aren't, mm. you know, necessarily terribly exclusive or expensive. Um, I mean, people think of Scotland, they think of, you know, the Royal and Ancient or Carnoustie or whatever. Um, and really the only I think I mean there and there, so there are a few bastions of exclusivity. Carnoustie wouldn't be one of them. Carnoustie has a, a few different golf clubs attached to it. St. Andrews does too. Like I'm a member of the St. Andrews Golf Club. I'm not a member of the Royal and Ancient, but that's only one of the five clubs attached to those golf courses. So like their scheme for separation of club and course is awesome. And so it's like they're fe- it's like, okay, the club can be the exclusive thing. Right. The Royal and Ancient or the Royal or the Honorable Company of Edinburgh golfers. Like I'm not getting into either of those. I would love to, if anyone's listening, I'm available. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't foresee it happening, but, um, <laughs> right, right. You know, You're free I can still there. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, but I'm a member of like some of the other clubs that are attached to the same courses, right. Um, that are perhaps maybe a little less exclusive or, or expensive, whatever. So that there's like, there's the idea that like, this is Scottish ground that belongs to all Scots. Now this building over here, that's only for like a handful. And that, I, I get it. That's fine. And I think that's a good way to like kind of draw, you know, that if you want, like there are certain things and traditions and exclusivity and all that stuff that is actually somewhat charming and, and kind of like, oh, in like an old timey nostalgic way. Like I, I, I like that it's exciting to go to place to walk into the doors at the Royal and Ancient or to go have lunch at, at Muirfield or um, or to get the invitation to go play at Cyprus or things that there are these like temples behind gates that um, I don't like that there's a lot so, as many as we have, uh, especially in the United States where everything's behind a gate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like that there are these sort of aspirational special days in golf that you might only have once in your life, but you did it and you got the shirt and you could tell your friends. 
But I, I think we'd be better off that there were like 10 of those instead of 10,000, you know, and because and, and we use this sort of private yeah. club model in America that is kind of a drag and it, mm-hmm. it comes from this notion of like it grows out of like kind of like an ugly place, like in the 19th century when they were built, created these things called country clubs, the first ones, so they could practice British games as America became less mm. British, where it, became, it was like sort of the the mob was descending from places like Ireland and Italy and where, wherever. Um, and, and they wanted to sort of keep, um, you know, these, these places to practice the fine arts of being a fine person. Right. And, uh, and that's what country clubs yeah, were, yeah. where they played cricket, where they rode horses, where they played lawn tennis, blah, blah, blah. A golf was like the last sport to come into that movement because golf kind of booms around the turn of the century, but it gets sucked into places like Philadelphia country club or Philadelphia cricket club, um, Brookline, whatever, like the, you know, those, um, so country clubs start, um, as a place to do other things and then add golf to the rotation. So anyway, that's a Mm. way of saying like, so that's where our baggage as a country comes from is that golf in America starts as an exclusive Mm -hmm. thing where golf in Scotland starts as like a, a thing that like soldiers are doing um, in on when they have free time or, sh- or shepherds are doing it or like wool traders or do- like common working class people. This was a game for regular people. Um, and it was a game, a game for the higher class too. It was, you know, it was just, a, it was, it, it didn't come with all the baggage with, with that we've put upon it. Right. It's, it's almost like America attempted a, misguided and therefore bad impression of something that already existed in order to fit in or templatize what what was already going on and they just they messed the schema up yeah i think the schema was messed up i think this doesn't need to be an exclusive thing right and i mean i think america did you know if you look at like what charles blair mcdonald does and like the early like sort of push to make golf great in america like america did like great things and did a better job um in terms of like mm-hmm. building like national golf links mm-hmm. like changes like so many things um it really puts american yeah. architecture on the map and like we're we can grow grass better we're playing with better conditions and like mcdonald had like so much to do with that um and sort of we get out from under scotland's shadow uh in the golf world and then american players start to win stuff and you know and so like yeah we started to do things better it was just it's just the notion that um okay we are going to in order to because america golf is new in america like we don't have golf courses that have been around mm. forever, like in Dornock or in or in Fife or wherever. That in order to build them, we're gonna start. We're gonna do it by getting thirty rich dudes together to put to to put out a hundred. Was probably like a hundred bucks back then. But um, you know, this notion of it being a club first, and then we'll have a golf course. Um, you know, in Scotland, it was always like, okay, mm. here's a golf course, and let's go play that one. We're we're a traveling golf like. The, the, mm-hmm. the honorable company and you know all the, the burgess or whatever they were all like traveling golf societies who played at all these different places and that's it's what's mm-hmm. and what's interesting is you, i think you're seeing that mm-hmm. come back right because you're seeing whether it be the outpost club or the new club uh the broken tea society the golfers journal the no laying up you know like there are these golf societies um right. flyers club that are yeah. yeah exactly that are having events and getting together to play golf in different places around the country and around the world. And I think, and people are really going for it. So it's kind of interesting how it's coming full circle Mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're spot on. 
Um, let's get into some of our meat and potatoes. These are a couple of the, the questions that we ask everybody that graces the couch. It's a very comfortable couch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Let you, me lay back You sit here. in it well. Um, yes. Uh, reclining. <laughs> it's more of a chaise lounge. We. Oui. Tom Coyne, what are some of your favorite golf smells? Golf smells? Easy. Uh, club man aftershave is the greatest golf smell uh, of all the golf yeah. smells. Well, yeah. it smells like an old man. It smells of nostalgia. It smells of my childhood. Splashing aftershave onto my 11-year-old face uh, to be a man. So if people don't know what Club Man is, it, it's, this, right. um, it's, it's this collection of smells and powders, etc., that you only see in golf locker rooms, country club locker rooms, and maybe some barbershops, some old-timey barbershops. So that those smells of the, the locker room smells are very uh, evocative um, of a life spent. You know, I didn't grow up at like a fancy country club. I grew up, but, an, you know, an, a golf club outside Philadelphia, a very a golf club outside Philadelphia called Rolling Green with an extraordinary golf course um, by William Flynn. But it wasn't a, a, a highfalutin membership. Um, you know, it was a it was a good mix of mm. people from all walks of life. And um, but nonetheless, uh, those smells bring me back. Um, and another smell. um Probably, honestly, cigar smoke from the card room. That that's evocative too. Um, mm. Cigarette smoke and cigar smoke, because my dad used to smoke. Everyone smoked back in the day, and um, you know, after golf, you know, I'm old enough to remember the days where guys would go golf for four hours and then play gin for six hours, and um, <laughs> and smoke. <laughs> And everyone have their own, yeah, a full day of of scotch and cigarettes, and um, and you can still the 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 smell in those rooms, um, they, that's that's stuck, and uh, and so they're just they're just nostalgic smells, really. That's what I love so much about that question is that for everybody it connects to uh, for a lot of people childhood, and like you said, you might not encounter that club man aftershave in any other part of the world other than a golf course you know if you if you pick up a whiff of that anywhere else on the street you'll you'll know that you'll place that immediately yeah totally i found it at cvs oh did you get it or is that sacrilege i found a bottle at cvs and oh i totally i totally got it and i've been wearing it like crazy my wife like hates it um but i feel like i smell like a man (laughs) this is i'm like honey this is what a man smells like it's pungent. It's like uh, Sex Panther and Anchorman. Ah, sixty percent of the time it works. Every time, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom, so you're 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 playing in in your club championship, and uh, they give you the opportunity to have a, a walk up song. What is your uh, what's your walk up music that's going to pump you up on the first tee? Oh, okay. Um, I. I'm going to go with probably Bob O'Reilly by The Who because I love the organ intro. Um, that's otherwise known as Teenage Wasteland because that I just get pumped up. Like that's what my workout mix or whatever for the when I work out once a, mm. every year. <clears throat> I play that thing and I go hard. <laughs> 
Um, and then I'm sore the next, and so I stop exercising. But um, so I love that tune. So you stop, right? Yeah, yeah. So then I stop. Um, and then um, you know, I I shout out to my a golfing friend of mine, Ben Rector. Um, love his new album. I love his song Heroes. Uh, it's very, it's got, it's very nostalgic and kind of explosive, and so maybe I'd walk up to that as well mm. to pick a more contemporary one. I like it. Let's say you you have the great fortune of winning your local club championship. You come back the following year. You got a dinner in your honor. What are you serving at your champion's dinner? Ooh, well, I'm a very much a meat and potatoes kind of person. Um, never met a vegetable. That, These questions are perfect for you then. That's that great. I liked. Um, so, yeah, they, they are. So I'm going to stay away uh from the veg i'm gonna go you know we're gonna go ribeye we're gonna go baked potato we're gonna Mm. go surf and turf maybe with a little um with a little crab cake action yeah yeah that's what i'm gonna do Mm. um or i could go we have some pretty great um my favorite like birthday meal is we would get this pizza in philadelphia from yeah i would serve tacanelli's pizza which is um, from Kensington. It's from Kensington, out just a neighborhood in a North Philly neighborhood, and um, the pizza's so good that and they would only make so many pies a day, and you would have to call in the morning and reserve your ball of dough. So you'd have to say, "All right, I want three pies tonight," um, and then they'd be by like ten o'clock in the morning, they're sold out. You know, so um, that place is sick. Wow. Uh, the absolute best pizza. So I'm going <laughs> to, all right, we're going to have talk Nelly's pizza, but we would have to take for a big event like that. We'd have to take all the, all the pizza, pizza balls, mm. dough balls. Yeah. Or the burger dog from Olympia yeah. as I the like appetizer. It. It's your dinner. And I then talk Nelly's pizza. Bang. Right. Nice. As the entree. Yeah. Okay. Any, any dessert or are we sticking uh you know after work. that point you're just you're full man you know like let's not overdo it i'm good on like it. Well, you got maybe a tournament to win cake. tomorrow you don't need any extra gullet action to swing around in the morning right yeah i got golf to play you know i'm here to i'm here to win a win a championship so tom this this podcast is very graciously sponsored by the good people at red rooster which is our our favorite glove company golf glove company mm-hmm. and um we have a segment here that we call get a grip inspired by the glove that you might use to to grip it and rip it um get a grip for this segment we'll give you we'll we'll give you like a a minute to rant on anything related to golf that comes up for you you get you get a full uninterrupted minute to just drag anything in golf or just get something off your chest that you feel has been pent up for the last few weeks all right um man there's so many things one could rant about in 2022 now let me think all right so now here's my thing um golf carts okay i'm just gonna tell you that um the game is a walking game and we're having this issue at my club where um if you if we don't have a caddy, 
um, you either have to take a cart or a trolley. And I don't know why. And so I've, 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 this is like, I do not get involved in, in course club politics, but I have actually like written about this because it's offensive to me that I cannot at, at any time just throw a bag on my shoulder and go play golf. I think that's absolutely essential to every golf mm. course anywhere that you should always be allowed and encouraged to walk the course. I don't care if your revenue model, if that doesn't fit your revenue model, change the dues, right? Like upcharge me in the beginning of the year because I want to be a walker. I don't care. Like I, 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 I get really frustrated about that uh, where, because I, I don't, um, I don't really take push carts and trolleys. I, I'm just always used to having, I'm an old caddy. Like I like ha- carrying my bag. And, um, and so I want to carry my own damn bag. Now I also understand if there are caddies available, you should take a caddy and I'm happy to do that. Uh, but this time of year, it's September. All the caddies have gone back to school. <laughs> There's only two or three guys left. They're probably out already. And now it's like, nope, Mr. Coin, it's cart. At these hours, you have to take a cart. You can't walk until after two. It's like, dude. And then I'm like, charge me for the cart. I'll walk. I'll carry my bag. And then it's like, no, we can't. No, no, I can't do that. You have to be on the cart. I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, that's offensive to me. And I think, and it's against the spirit of golf, uh, and it's against the history of the game. And it's, um, and it sucks. It sucks. This is a this is a chance for the the best thing golf can offer everybody. No matter how bad you are, how frustrated you are, or how much you do or don't know about the game, everyone can at least get some exercise out of it, right? It can make us all a little bit healthier. It's the only damn exercise I get. Um, and my Apple Watch will attest to that. On the days when I don't golf, I, it says, it's like, <laughs> you're, a, you're a slob. And the days that I golf, it's like, you're a champ. Um, so, yeah, walking. <laughs> let, us, let us walk. Damn it. Let the people walk. Tom Coyne, get a grip. Get a grip, man. That is amazing. Well done. Well said. Thank you. It's asinine that they won't let you walk. Damn it. Yeah. It's bonkers. Well, I think that takes us to the end. That feels good. That takes us home. Tom, thank you so much. No, you guys are awesome. It was great to be on here with you. I'm glad we got we got into some good stuff. So that's always that's always fun. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I, I hope our, our pads cross. Yeah.